It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm starting out today talking about naked women in a desperate attempt to get my podcast numbers up. That would be crass. It would be crude. It's contrary to everything that I stand for. However, I reserve the right to talk about, oh, I don't know, naked women, when there's a legitimate news story or feature or some sort of nexus with the journalistic world. And that's what I'm finding in this story, an exclusive story, in the New York Post. Okay, so let's get underway with this. Uh, Any woman can be a magazine cover girl these days if she's willing to pony up the dough. So a lot of this has to do with Playboy. Now, my first reaction was, Playboy, what? Does that still exist? And by the way, uh, I once interviewed Hugh Hefner out at the Playboy Mansion, so I know a little bit about the history of Playboy, leaving aside whatever education I may have had as a teenager about a magazine that I may or may not have looked at. But if I did, it was for the articles. Okay, so according to this piece, the lead anecdote is about uh, a woman. She's a massage therapist in Florida. Her name is Juliette Amelia. Uh, She looked like a really hot model when suddenly she is on eight covers of the Playboy's international editions. Now, the Playboy, the print magazine, doesn't exist anymore, but it still exists as an online presence. And apparently she was on Playboy Sweden, Playboy South Africa, Playboy New Zealand. I mean, who knew these things were even a thing? In just a one-year period. And it turns out that this woman who sells uh, uncensored images on the website uh, was also on the front page of the British men's magazine, FHM, in South Africa and Australia. Okay, so what's going on? Here's Johnny Cordes. He is the former editor and publisher of Playboy Slovakia, which I have never seen. Uh, he says to the New York Post, not even Pamela Anderson was on as many covers. Uh, it turns out, and he was critical of this, he said, the practice of essentially buying your way onto these virtual Playboy covers was so rampant when he ran the magazine that he complained to headquarters saying it was watering down the brand. Playboy put out a statement. Playboy Enterprises does not condone the practice of charging models to be in our pages or those of our international editions. That is counter to our standards. We urge any model has been approached to make us aware. So it's the photographers that are doing this. Um, According to this piece, uh, there's kind of this shadowy market where for as much as $10,000, not including the cost of the wardrobe, baking, shooting, and editing, which is also uh, paid by the model, uh, a woman can get her images onto some of these international magazines online, which then helps her with social media, raises the brand awareness, and all of that. And the photographers uh, say, here's a photographer who does this, Ryan Dwyer. He says, well, if the model is the girlfriend of a famous athlete, they'll do it for free. If she's Lacey the stripper from Vegas, they want to get paid. Unbeknownst to all of us, there are women who want to be out there on these brand name websites and are willing to pay money to photographers uh, who then turn around and sell the whole package, edited, well shot, well lit, um, potential cover girls, to uh, virtual places like Playboy and other magazines. This is an interesting look at uh, this sort of netherworld. All right, I'm going to go from the light topic to the more serious business here with story number one. And of course, it's COVID because everything is heating up with COVID. Uh, The number of daily new cases now, what, 126,000? Somewhere in that realm. So 
one of the epicenters right now is, is in Texas. And one of the problems, and tell me this doesn't feel like deja vu all over again, is that hospitals are running out of beds. Hospitals in Texas, according to the New York Times, warning of strain resources. 10,000 new coronavirus patients admitted to hospitals in the state just in the past week. At least 53 Texas hospitals now have ICUs that are at maximum capacity. Two in Houston, so overwhelmed that officials had to build overflow tents outside. In Austin, ICUs running out of a short of beds. San Antonio, virus cases reached alarming levels with infants as young as two months tethered to supplemental oxygen. I mean, this is really chilling stuff. Um, so this spike comes as, if you look at the national picture, uh, about one out of five of American hospitals that have intensive care units, it's more than 500 hospitals, recently reported at least 95% of their ICU beds were full. This has affected not only COVID patients, but the ability to treat other patients who ordinarily would come into an emergency room and go into an ICU bed. Uh, so obviously there's a political aspect to this because Texas Governor Greg Abbott is standing firm in his refusal to enact any statewide mandates on vaccines or masks. Uh, so what has he done? He is appealing to out-of-state healthcare workers to travel to Texas, uh, where these um, virus cases are now projected to reach 15,000 by the end of August. So obviously, he's trying to do what he can to help manage the crisis. And just as obviously, if he issued a mask mandate tomorrow, it doesn't, you know, completely immediate or immediately resolve the problem. It's just one precaution that people can take. So a uh, guy, a doctor who's the head of, uh, who's the chief medical officer of Houston, blames state officials for giving inadequate attention to the importance of vaccines. He says that Governor Abbott uh, is taking the wrong approach. The unvaccinated, he said, are endangering themselves and their families. Um, about 240 Texas children hospitalized with the virus, according to the Texas Department of Health Services. President Biden even told reporters yesterday that he was exploring, I don't know how there's any way he can do this, but he was exploring whether the federal government has the authority to intervene in the orders issued by Greg Abbott. Uh, you know, obviously, if you think back to 1957, Dwight Eisenhower sending the National Guard uh, to begin the desegregation of public schools in Arkansas and Little Rock, there were times when the federal government does use its unique powers to overrule state officials. Is this such an instance? Would, would there be a huge backlash against Biden if he did this? Um, the public opinion is divided. I'll get to that in a second. Meanwhile, also according to the New York Times, and this is not just about Republican governors, this is not just about that many people who happen to be conservative or Republican are at much lower participation rates for the COVID-19 vaccines. Young black New Yorkers, this is New York City, and by young, they mean age group 18 to 44. Now, according to the Times, only 27% of black New Yorkers in that age group are fully vaccinated. That compares with 48% of Latino residents, 52% of white residents. So there's a real racial aspect to this, and it's, it's resulting in a situation where obviously the rate of contracting COVID, rate of hospitalizations and all of that, much higher in the black community in the city of New York. 
Now, the Times went out and interviewed a whole bunch of black New Yorkers, uh, a dancer in Brownsville, a young mother of five in Far Rockaway, a teacher in Canarsie, a Black Lives Matter activist in the Bronx, many others. And they gave a long list of reasons for not getting vaccinated. A lot of that rooted in a fear that during these uncertain times, they could not trust the government with their health. Well, if you know about the history of the Tuskegee experiment, you can understand why blacks would be reluctant to trust the government. Um, some of them feel like, well, they've survived so far and health authorities didn't help them. But ultimately, some of these black New Yorkers said in interviews they would get the vaccine if they are forced to do so, such as to keep their jobs. Let me uh, now talk about brand new Fox News poll came out last night about this very question. What is more important than thinking when thinking about U.S. COVID vaccination rules? Protecting safety, 50% say yes. Protecting freedom, 47% say yes. So it almost even split, according to this survey, about which should be prioritized. You know, it's so important that we got to force people to get these vaccinations or uh, make it so difficult for them in terms of what they can do at the workplace, entertainment, bars, restaurants, sports stadiums. Half the country says yes, but another 47% say individual rights are more important. Okay, cities requiring people to provide proof of vaccine for indoor activities. That's favored by 50% of Americans in this Fox survey, opposed by 46%. So again, an almost equal divide. Okay, are you more or less likely to shop at stores that require either proof of vaccination or negative test? 44% say more likely. 24% say less likely. 31% say no difference, except those who are unvaccinated wouldn't be able to go into these stores. So that would be an incentive, I think, with nearly half of those, at least according to this survey, uh, saying they'd be more likely to shop at a store for a lot of retail chains, some of which are still on the fence, to go ahead and move this. I understand the other part of the debate, but I just wanted to clue you in here on uh, this latest poll, which speaks directly to these numbers. And, and the other problem now with the hospitals is staffing. So, for example, uh, COVID-19 patients uh, are going into, they're flooding six uh, hospitals in Broward County, Florida, that's Fort Lauderdale and the environs, run by Memorial Healthcare System. Uh, Memorial has enough beds, but not enough nurses. The hospital system has scrambled to hire 439 travel nurses from as far away as Alaska. And it's offering its own nurses well-paid short-term contracts to compete with the appeal of working for outside agencies. It's beginning to pause or delay some elective surgeries to shift staff to patients who are very ill with COVID-19. 700 nursing vacancies. This is just one healthcare system in Florida. I think you're seeing this a lot. And so, you know, given the burnout that people have been, that the frontline healthcare workers have been dealing with for, what, a year and a half now? And, you know, just the fact that some are quitting, some just can't do this anymore, or some are leaving these public hospitals or even private hospitals to go work elsewhere. Uh, man, this is a major league mess. Number two, National Review with a different point of view, focusing on Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, who's become almost a poster boy for not using the heavy hand of government to mandate vaccines, to mandate mask wearing. Uh, and President Biden has taken some shots at DeSantis, and DeSantis, uh, who is an ally of Donald Trump, who wants to run for president in 2024, is relishing his role as um, 
probably the highest profile Republican right now um, embracing the position that people shouldn't be forced to do these things. So National Review says the following. There's a reason why the left needs Ron DeSantis to fail. And it isn't only about 2024. Uh, sure, the magazine says, given that DeSantis has the potential to unite the Trumpist and traditional Republican wings of the party, Democrats would much rather him go down in flames in next year's governor's race. Otherwise, they might have to take their chances against him. I mean, presumably he was, presuming he was the GOP nominee with a nearly 82-year-old President Biden or a deeply unpopular Vice President Kamala Harris. But it's not just politics that explains what National Review calls the hysterical obsession that out-of-state liberals have developed for the Florida governor. So here's the argument. Since early in the pandemic, liberals have been eager to portray DeSantis as a reckless sociopath, warning that he was a grin reaper, the kind of charlatan who puts owning the libs ahead of protecting people's lives. Now, if not politics, why the overblown reaction? Well, here's National Review's answer. The deeper reason the left is so eager to see DeSantis fail is that they don't want to believe that they disrupted over a year of their lives following restrictions that may turn out to have been unnecessary. It's comforting to believe that all of their sacrifices for going vacations, missing meetings with friends and family, depriving their kids of in-person school, masking, and so forth, serve the noble goal of saving lives. It's much harder to accept that may not have made much of a difference. In an age when a crazy virus can come out of nowhere and wreak havoc, it's human nature for people to want to feel as though they can assert control over it. Well, it's pretty clear at this point with the Delta variant that we don't have control over it. And, you know, you can say, well, look, Florida has some natural advantages with the warm climate. People can spend a lot more time outside, and that has helped. There have been times when the Florida COVID rate has been pretty low, Right now, Florida, along with Texas and, and a number of other places and counties, is a COVID-19 epicenter and obviously having the hospitalization problems. Now, can you draw a direct, direct line from Ron DeSantis' policies on masks and vaccines? And particularly, this the focus, of course, right now is on schools um, because you have uh, in Florida, and I talked about this, I think, on yesterday's podcast or certainly this week, a number of local school districts, county officials saying, we are not going to go along with the governor's mandate. We are going to, the mandate being that you can't force kids in school, public schools to wear masks. They're saying, we can't do that. We have to protect the safety of our kids. Kids under 12 can't get vaccinated. That's a whole other question. Why is the FDA approval taking so long on that? I, look, I understand. You want to be especially careful with younger people who may not have the same kind of immunity systems and so forth. Uh, I have an entire column today on how upset I am, how angry I am, how frustrated I am that the FDA has moved so slowly to give permanent approval to the vaccines that, what, 160 million Americans have taken? Pfizer, Moderna, J&J. In effect, they've green-lighted it. And yet, because they won't give the permanent approval, and here I think... President Biden needs to put some pressure on the agency. He hasn't even nominated an FDA commissioner, for crying out loud, not to overrule any scientific objections they might have. Everybody says, including Fauci, the FDA will approve this in September. It's been months and months. The FDA needs to get past this bureaucratic slowness, and the president of the United States 
who ultimately has the power, not again, not to say your scientific objections are invalid. Biden has quite properly said that he will leave this to the scientists and the experts. But even Fauci said it's a technicality if the FDA hasn't approved it. It's going to approve it. They just have their own way of doing things. Fauci said this on MSNBC. Well, if it's a technicality and it's going to happen anyway, how about somebody who might be, let's say, working in the Oval Office giving these bureaucrats a kick in the pants to get moving here? So I don't know that I agree with National Review that, oh, uh, liberals are clinging to the idea that their sacrifices must not be in vain. I, I think a lot of people and liberals don't have a monopoly on this are just truly worried about this third surge, this Delta variant, and the fact that we still have so many unvaccinated people. If we could cut that in half, there are about 90 million unvaccinated. If we could cut that to 45 million I think we would make tremendous progress. You'd have most of the country that's either been vaccinated or has had COVID-19. But that's a long way to get there. And politically, look, Biden was riding pretty high even in these polarized times when it looked like we had beaten the virus. And now we are very clearly not beating the virus. The virus is beating many of us. And so I think you, you are seeing his numbers start to come down and they will come down more. President gets credit or blame. When you're the top guy, that's just the way politics works. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number three. Rudy Giuliani back in the news uh, with the release of, uh, under an FOI request, a transcript of an interview. The Washington Post obtained this. Interview he did in 2018 with Justice Department Inspector General officials who were looking into... The election. Actually, I think this is the election of 2016. Remember, in the last two weeks of that election, Jim Comey, then the FBI director, came out and said, well, we're restarting the investigation because Anthony Weiner's laptop. It's all ancient history. But the suggestion when Rudy would make these boasts was that he knew. He had non-public information from the Department of Justice and the FBI. Well, turns out, at least according to Rudy, that's not the case. So during this interview with the IG's people in 2018... Rudy and his law partner and counselor, Mark Mukasey, they said, well, you know what? The standards for truth-telling are very different in a campaign. In the heat of a political campaign, said Mukasey, uh, on television, I'm not saying Rudy necessarily, but everybody embellishes everything. Rudy says, oh, you could throw a fake. You're under no obligation to tell the truth, says Mukasey. And Rudy replies, you could throw a fake. Agent says, fake news, right? And Mukasey says, right. So Giuliani's defense is, he, he was just talking about, well, maybe we're going to do a big TV buy. He didn't have any information. He hadn't talked to anybody with the FBI for a long time. Now, he liked, I think, to give the impression that he was still plugged in. Uh, and look, it, it is it, the factual basis is true. It's not against the law to lie during a campaign. It's not against the law to lie in television interviews. Now, for the former mayor of New York City and former U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York to say that is not exactly a good look for Rudy. But that's what he said in this interview, and now it has become public. Speaking of Trump world, there's some more information about the efforts by President Trump in the final weeks of his administration pressuring the DOJ and acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen to try to save the 
election was stolen. Remember, just say the election was corrupt and I'll do the rest. So Rosen testified last weekend, closed our testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee. And this is now leaked, of course. And he said that his boss was persistent in trying to use DOJ to discredit the 2020 election. Jeffrey Rosen said in his testimony he tried to persuade the president not to pursue a different path. At a meeting in January, was Trump considered getting rid of Rosen as the nation's top law enforcement officer and bringing in another guy, Jeffrey Clark, who apparently was willing to do his bidding. The president was persistent with his inquiries, Rosen testified, and I would have strongly preferred that he had chosen a different focus in the last month of his presidency. But as to the actual issues put to the Justice Department, DOJ consistently acted with integrity and the rule of law held fast. Rosen also saying he thought Trump's claims about voting irregularities were, quote, misguided. And I disagreed with things that President Trump suggested the Justice Department do. So we did not do them. And that is the bottom line here. Oh, one more. Uh, and he says that uh, Trump was either misinformed or wrong about these claims. Oh, one more. Mike Lindell, my pillow guy. Remember, he had a big cyber uh, symposium. He's been touting this for months. This is the month when he said President Trump would be re-inaugurated. According to the Washington Times, the cyber expert hired by my pillow guy um, to deliver data which would prove that China hacked the 2020 election, the Lindell's own expert says that's not true. Lindell claimed he had 37 terabytes, I don't know exactly what that is, but it's a lot, of Irrefutable evidence that the hackers backed by China broke into election systems and switched votes to Biden. Okay, but cyber expert Josh Merritt, who's on the team, told the Washington Times that the packet captures were unrecoverable and do not prove anything. Do not prove any cyber hacking by China. Number four, uh, well, now that uh, Republicans are very happy that Andrew Cuomo has stepped down as New York governor, they want to get rid of the other prominent Democratic governor, Gavin Newsom in Florida, who faces a recall election next month. And a guy who's doing really well is Larry Elder. He's an African-American conservative radio talk show host. But according to the San Diego Union Tribune, a lot of the things that Larry Elder has said, you know, when you're in the radio talk show business, you say a lot of stuff, right? You're trying to get the audience riled up could hurt him in this recall. For example, Larry Elder has uh, talked skeptically about climate change. He's described global warming as a crock and a myth. Don't think that plays too well in the Golden State. Uh, he says the medical establishment and professional victims exaggerate the dangers of secondhand tobacco smoke. When a doctor came on his show, nationally syndicated radio show, to suggest COVID-19 vaccines were dangerous, he didn't push back. He didn't uh, push back when this doctor said that Bill Gates might have backed the experimental immunizations as a form of population control. I could see him being asked about that in a debate. Larry Elder created a platform for those views in a media career spanning more than 30 years. What works in a media career doesn't always work in a um, political campaign. And Elder himself told the Los Angeles Times in a recent interview that... Um, he might declare a state of emergency as governor to fire bad teachers. I think actually that would be popular. But he says they make up between 5 and 7% of the state's public school faculty. He said he could declare another emergency to suspend the California Environmental Quality Act. Remember, California's a very environmentally minded state. Now, the reason I'm talking about Larry Elder is 
he actually has a shot because of the two-part, uh, the two-step process in the California recall. This is the same system that made Arnold Schwarzenegger the governor back in 2003. So if Gavin Newsom wins 50%, that's the first question on the ballot, he remains as governor. If Gavin Newsom does not win, then he's recalled, and then it becomes the, whoever gets the most votes in a multi-candidate field. Well, Elder is polling, some, polling something around 16 to 20%. He could actually win uh, with such a relatively low uh, polling number if everybody else is below, and then Newsom is out, and you know there's a whole lot of people running Caitlyn Jenner and, and a bunch of people who you've probably never heard of. So now I think we're seeing the start of a campaign. Well, look, first of all, the media, you know, he's a potential ex-governor of California. The media should look into his background, what he said publicly. It's certainly perfectly fair game. No question about that. But what will the other candidates get similar scrutiny? So that's the state of play out in California. eh? And now, number five, New York, uh, Kathy Hochul who you probably had never heard of until about a week ago. She's the lieutenant governor of New York. Uh, Unlike several recent New York governors, she's from the Buffalo area, the western part of the state. She held a news conference yesterday to talk about becoming governor, which she will in about 13 days. She talked to Andrew Cuomo, who's resigning. He said he would help in the transition. A lot of people wondering why he set his resignation date for two weeks after uh, the Tuesday announcement. Kathy Hochul said, you know, she looked pretty good. She said that she would not employ any Cuomo aides found by the uh, state attorney general to have taken part in any unethical actions when it came to Andrew Cuomo, sexual harassment, and retaliation. She said, look, I think it's pretty clear. It's no secret. We have not been close. She is totally cut out. She hadn't talked to the governor in months. She mostly, mostly tours the state and gives speeches about liberal priorities. Uh, She was asked by a reporter, would you consider pardoning Cuomo if he's convicted of criminal offenses? Kathy Hochul, far too premature to have those conversations. And then she said the following, I will be here at the end of my term, wherever that might be. Quote, no one will ever describe my administration as a toxic work environment. And The Atlantic has a piece. Chuck Todd on MSNBC was the first to raise this. Like, could Andrew Cuomo be resigning and secretly plotting a comeback? You know, never say never. The Atlantic says some observers wonder whether he has one last grand, grand gambit back, a resignation speech that might double as a re-election campaign launch. You know, so you had him defending himself in that speech, resigning. He still got $18 million in his campaign war chest, which could be used for uh, travel and other political activities. He can't spend it on you know, his personal life. Um, here's a quote from his former chief of staff, Josh Velasco, uh, from the AG's report. The odd play, the odd part about these workplace stories, uh, is that it's not even close to what it was really like to work there day to day. It was so much worse. The abuse and the mind games. This was a guy who was very close, uh, to the governor at one time. So the theory is, according to the Atlantic, which is not exactly embracing this, Gradually over time, if New York continues to have problems, voters might start to forget the specific and detailed accusations laid out in the Attorney General's report and grow nostalgic for the governing that Cuomo spent most of his resignation speech talking up. But 
First of all, Cuomo still's got other problems. He's got to get past the legal challenges with a bunch of uh, district attorneys still looking into possible criminal action. The state assembly could still decide to proceed with impeachment, A, just to stick it to a guy they don't like very much. Remember, this is controlled by Democrats. B, to ensure, if he was impeached and eviction, that he would be barred from running again. Um, And he could face civil lawsuits. So I'm skeptical that he'd be able to pull this off. Not that he's not thinking about it in the back of his mind. But I'm reminded of the former, the late D.C. mayor, Marion Barry. Marion Barry, uh, there was that famous sting in the 1980s where he was caught Uh, smoking crack cocaine. He'd been set up, the famous quote, bitch set me up, by a woman who he was uh, sleeping with or trying to sleep with, the married mayor at the time. And he had to leave office and he went to jail. And uh, less than four years later, he ran again. And the press was completely and totally against him. This is a guy who'd been convicted of, of drug offenses, of lying about it, uh, and he came back and he won. And that was a very racial thing. Most of the white residents of District Columbia voted against Marion Barry, but he got strong support in the black community, which thought, give him another chance. He's learned his lesson. They're more familiar, certainly. And then there was certainly a feeling that maybe white prosecutors had targeted the mayor on drug offenses. It played very different. And I remember his news conference after he was reelected, after being in jail, uh, he was asked about the opposition by predominantly white ward in the District of Columbia, most affluent ward, Ward 3. And Marion Barry said, get over it. Now, is Andrew Cuomo going to be in a position to say something similar one day? I wouldn't bet much money on it. Um, But that's what's being chattered about in the media world. Well, thank you all for listening. Stay safe. Subscribe to our podcast if you would. And we're back here tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.